Welcome to the podcast where we talk to guests about five moments in their lives they'll never forget. This is Backstory with Steve Legg. It's fabulous to have you with me today on the new show, where I bring together an incredible array of stars of stage and screen, stand-up comedians and magicians, writers and artists, leaders and entrepreneurs, to chat about the five significant times in their lives they'll never forget. It's great to have you here. Well, the time has come. (laughs) The moment you've been waiting for. Do you know what? I've never had a fanfare on the show before. But the, the, the guest we got up next is worthy of it. Um, one half of the iconic rock and soul duo, Daryl Hall and John Oates, the most successful duo in American pop history. Would you welcome my guest, Mr. John Oates? Here he is. <laughs> Hello, John. Well, well, well. A double fanfare. I, that's, uh, that's, that's the way to start the morning here in Nashville. Do you know what? I can say hand on heart, we've never had one fanfare before, but two fanfares. <laughs> <laughs> the reality is I pressed the wrong button. I should have given you this. <laughs> but uh, I'm overexcited, overexcited to chat to you. It is wonderful. Welcome. As you say, you're in Nashville today, and we're very excited about your new album, which is out now, which we're going to chat to you about a little bit later. But take us back to beginnings john uh musical family um not really but a musically supportive family okay so what sort of music was playing in your house as you were growing up well you know i i, I you know i have to i guess I, my age will show but uh, nevertheless I, I i like to even you know i'm very actually proud of the fact that i was born and recognized that that uh, music before rock and roll even began. My parents were of the World War II generation, of course, so they they played a lot of big band music, um, that sort of thing. That was their their sweet spot as teenagers, you know, as before the war. And so as I grew up, uh, that's the music I heard, and it really has, has always remained a part of my musical DNA. So when uh, when the early fifties rolled around and and rock and roll began and began to be be played on the radio. I I was actually aware enough to realize that something new had happened. That something you know completely different was was happening, and um, and it was really exciting for me. Even as a little little kid, one of my first musical experiences was to hear Bill Haley and the Comets play live at a local amusement park. Um, Bill Haley was actually from New Jersey, and I grew up in Pennsylvania. So um, you know, for him to that was a local gig, I guess, for him and the, and the, the Comets. And I remember, you know, walking down to this little band show in the amusement park and literally standing next to the stage and they played Rock Around the Clock and all that stuff. Uh, it was it was really life changing. Wow. And so um, so I, I began singing and, you know, I was singing as a little kid and I began playing guitar at six years old. So um, this, you know, I, I jumped in early in, in the rock and roll, you know, at the, at the very beginnings of, of rock and roll. So were you inspired by Glenn Miller at all? Yeah, I mean, all all the all of the big band, you know, um, the music of, of big of the big band era, you know, Lionel Hampton, Tommy Dorsey, Glenn Miller, Benny Goodman, uh, you know, it was just really a music that I um, that I heard, and it's interesting that later in life, actually, just really quite recently, 
I began to to lean back, not necessarily on that music, but on the style of chord changes, on the arrangement concepts that I that was really deep in my musical DNA from that that time. I've written a lot of songs that are much more, uh, I guess, you know, harmonically sophisticated, which you know was a was a hallmark of the big band era. Yeah, it was beautiful sound. It was a very big, sort of fat sound, if you like, wasn't it? Yeah, fat and and very, 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 especially in the arrangements, very musically sophisticated. John, did you always want to be a pop star? Was that a dream as a kid at high school? No, I wanted to be a musician. <laughs> the pop star stuff. The pop star. You know, it's interesting. You know, when they say, you know, do you, do you, do you want to be a star? And it's it's something that kind of bothers me about the uh, about the newer generation of, of musicians. You know, I think that that becoming a star should be a byproduct of of of, of musicianship, hard work, and professionalism. I think it's mm-hmm. you know I don't want to sound too old, like an old fogey or too serious about it, but honestly, you know. The desire to be a pop star shouldn't be the goal. That should be the the result of hard work and and, and passion and dedication. So I I you know I I always say you know work on your craft. Learn learn you know learn what it is that you you know be good at what you want to do, whether it's songwriting or singing or playing. And then you know if you are then that the the stardom element is is here again should be a result of that. That's, that's not necessarily a goal. That's brilliant. I mean, our generation now, you speak to young people, you ask them what they want to do when they're older, and they want to be celebrities. Yeah, they want to be celebrities and stars. Well, yeah. you know, what, what, what's the foundation for that? You know, totally. what, what are you bringing, what are you bringing to the table? What are, what are you offering to the world that, that, that would make you worthy of that? Of course. Now, John, you met Daryl Hall in 1967. What do you remember about your first meeting? Well, I was aware of him and his band, and his—I'm I'm sorry, not his band, his vocal group, The Temptones. Um, and I had a group called The Masters. We both had uh, singles being played on the local R&B Philadelphia radio stations at the same time. We weren't—we didn't know each other, but we were very aware of each other. Philadelphia music scene was very small at the time, and so I, you know, I thought thought he had a really cool record out. Um, I saw his group perform at a place called the Freedom. It was called the Freedom Show. It was a, a predominantly R and B show uh, that was held in Philadelphia, and I realized they were really good singers and great harmony in, in the style of the Temptations, hence the name, the Temptones. Um, and um, you know, so when we finally met, it was we we were both individually invited to a. Uh, a Philadelphia DJ was holding a teenage dance, you know, a record hop in, in, in a very kind of a funky, dangerous area in West Philadelphia. And uh, we were all gathered backstage. Uh, we were with the Five Stair Steps were there and a guy named Howard Tate, who had a very obscure but cool regional hit called Look at Granny Run Run. And um, there we were kind of hanging around waiting to go on and lip sync our singles. And a gang fight broke out and we went down to the street level and that's how we met <laughs> well because of a fight well it was a, yeah it was a gang fight in the in the among the audience not among us no we were kind of <laughs> in this little holding area backstage in this ballroom called uh, the Adelphi ballroom in west philadelphia and uh, we you know that's how we met and we were like hey man yeah i heard your record on the radio yeah man you know kind of thing and yeah. uh you know, uh, eventually a few of the guys in my group got, got drafted into Vietnam. My group fell apart. I joined Daryl's group as a backup guitarist 
And then that group fell apart and he and I became friends and started hanging out. Wow. And the rest is history. Uh, most successful duo in American pop history, 21 albums, 80 million units. That is quite something. John, take us through the songwriting process. Is it ordered or is it chaotic or all of the above? The songwriting process between yeah. Daryl and I? Yeah. Uh, no, it wasn't chaotic at all. In fact, I, the, the, you know, even before we, we were formally, you know, formed a group, so to speak, or formed a duo, whatever you want to call it. I, I, I our songwriting process was really just a, a I think it was it, it was a result of him being dissatisfied with what he was doing at the time. He was playing some you know, he was doing a few recording sessions. He was playing in a bar band at night. I was playing in folk clubs and playing with the various like, you know, casually playing with blues bands around Philadelphia. And neither of us were very satisfied with what we were doing. And the, our, our partnership was almost like a result of of, uh, of wanting to try something different and try breaking it down to a very organic, simple thing uh, and seeing where it would go. And that's how it started. So, no, no, there was no conflicts. It was just really, um, you know, he brought what he brought to the table and, and I brought what I brought to the table. And eventually uh, those two things began to gel and, and began to form into something totally new. Sure. Was it hard getting radio play in the 70s when I guess disco music was everywhere and you were a little bit different? Well, you know, we started in the early 70s. Disco hadn't even been thought about. Um, we, we started during the period of time, which was the singer-songwriter era in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, with Joni Mitchell and, you know, Jackson Brown, mm -hmm. J.D. Salder, the beginning of the Eagles and things like that. So we were kind of we kind of saw ourselves as, you know, singer songwriters, uh, acoustic, you know, acoustically oriented. And then as time went on and we began to get a record contract and record, we, we began to get much more aggressive and start to think of ourselves more as a band and begin to, we pulled in, you know, uh, musicians and formed a band. And ever since really, since the early seventies, we were really two band leaders working with a backing band. Oh, I like it. Yeah, I like it very much. When did you realize you'd actually made it and uh, you were famous, if you like? I'm still waiting for that to happen. <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, that's how I think of it. I, you know, I, I know it's, it's, it's a bit flip of an answer, but, um, you know, considering our success. But honestly, uh, it, it was so – success always seems to be this ephem ephemeral thing that that is hard to grasp. And even when you, you seem to, you know, when the world seems to acknowledge that you have it, you always wonder whether it's real or not and whether you can sustain it. I, I think, you know, to me, that's the mark of a lot of people who are successful. They don't really accept success as, as a, you know, as a, a moment in time where everything, you know, has, has happened. They, they see it as, as this thing that they want to, you know, continue to strive for. And, they, and perhaps it's really about trying to be better, you know, trying to write the better song, you know, do the better live performance, do the better vocal performance, you know, play, play your instrument better. You know, to me, that's, that's what success really is. You have an amazing gift, John. Do you think it's God given? I do. Um, I was born to do this. I don't know how or why. Um, and I think Daryl's the same way, exact same way. Uh, we were both child performers. You know, Daryl's mother was a singer in a band. Um, Daryl sang at a very, very early age. His his talent was recognized by his family and the people around him at a very, very early age. You know, 
five, six years old or whatever. And it was the same for me. Um, and I've never thought about myself. I ne- I've always identified myself as a musician. There's never been any question about what I was going to do or how I was going to do it. This is absolutely fabulous. Do not go anywhere. We'll be back after this. In the latest bumper edition of Sorted magazine, big name exclusive interviews, Hollywood A-listers, TV adventurer Bear Grylls, inspirational true life stories, adrenaline-fueled sports features, all this plus gadgets, entertainment, motoring, movies and technology, plus probably the greatest team of Christian writers ever assembled. Available now from high street retailers nationwide or visit sortedmag.com. Sorted. For men. For life. Connect Radio is the newest radio station to hit the UK. We do things differently and bring you a unique mix of music and entertainment. In fact, we're so unique that we're the only station in the UK to bring you Christian and mainstream music side by side. We promise you'll like what you hear. Download the free app now or visit our website, connectradio.com. Connectradio.com. You're listening to the Backstory Podcast with Steve Legg and friends. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the memories. So here I am with Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. I can't really believe it. It's John Oates. John, um, Live Aid, a, a gig I remembered. What do you remember about playing at that incredible event? Well, it, it occurred during the time when we were at our, our you know, kind of pop peak, so to speak, uh, in the 80s. And, uh, our, you know, the, the English version, obviously, you know, uh, the one that happened in London mm. was, uh, you know, was it was just an amazing concept that, you know, that, that Bob Geldof could actually pull this together and, and bring these people together. And then, of course, the American version was happening in Philadelphia, our hometown. And here we were, you know, on the top of the charts. So it was, it was you know, it felt very comfortable and very, you know, it seemed like the right thing for us to be headlining. And we wanted to do something very, very special above and beyond our our, our set of our music. And uh, at the time, Mick Jagger had, I believe, had done a solo album and he didn't really have a band. Uh, he reached out to us and asked if we would back him. Uh, and of course, we, we were very you know, excited about doing that. And then he wanted to bring in uh, Tina Turner as a special guest. And, and we wanted to bring in Eddie Kendrick and David Ruffin from The Temptations, who we had just done uh, the Apollo Theater show with. So we wanted to make it bigger than, you know, bigger than the whole uh, of, of just us you know, performing. And so that's what happened. So we headlined the uh, Philadelphia American version. And did this incredible show and brought Mick out and Mick brought Tina out. And then we had Eddie and David. So it was really an incredible, you know, incredible event. There we were backstage with everyone who was anyone in American pop music at the time. And uh, so it was just a really, you know, just a once in a lifetime uh, thing to be involved with. And I'm really, uh, you know, I, I look back on it with amazing memories. It's an incredible day. Have you ever been starstruck? Um, not really, uh, but I, I had great admiration for a lot of people. I mean, when I was a little kid, you know, um, going to the Apollo Theater on Saturday night, I mean, and going to the Uptown Theater in Philadelphia and seeing the, the greats of, of, um, you know, American soul music greats who, who were performing there. I, I, w- I would say I was starstruck, I, but I was learning. I was, not only was I starstruck, but I was re- really just 
you know, I just had this incredible admiration for the style and the, and the, the, the skill of, of the singers and the band, and the players in the band. You know, I mean, I saw Stevie Wonder do fingertips when he was 12 years old. <laughs> well, you know, I saw the Temptations. I saw, you know, Otis Redding and Sam and Dave and James Brown and the Miracles and, and the Four Tops. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I saw them all live and I saw what they did to the audience and how they elicited this incredible excitement out of the audience. And it was just like an education, really. How did you cope with lockdown, John, after 50 years touring, traveling around, gigging to audiences? Um, uh, how was yeah, it? I, it, it, interestingly enough, and I know that it's not very, perhaps very nice to say when there was so much, you know, heartbreak and, and loss during that period of time. But for me, it was it was a chance to re, really reset completely, you know, on a lot of levels, um, not only artistically, but business-wise and personally. I got to stay home for the first time in my entire professional career for any length of time. And you know, I've been touring since 1972 and never really stopping. So to be home and to be with my wife and to reevaluate a lot of things that I was doing and how things were being handled, it was an opportunity to really step back and, and uh, recalculate and reset. And I wrote a lot of songs. I got involved uh, with a lot of, you know, like uh, collaborating with people via Zoom and with people around the world and doing things I had never done before. So for me, it was actually pretty, you know, I, 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 I think of it back as a very uh, important time for me. You, you mentioned your wife, Amy, and I know Feeding America is your organization where you've done amazing work feeding 450,000 hungry Americans. What's motivated you to do that? Are you a man of faith, for example? Well, yeah, I am certainly a man of faith. I'm, a, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I, I believe that I, you know, that I, to have a sympathy and, and empathy for, uh, for, you know, for not, you know, on a greater level, mankind, of course, but really, you know, uh, you have to stay, you have to stay close to home. Mm. You have to try to affect, be effective in in a place where where it matters. And to me, that's always, you know, think globally, act locally. Is, you know, I know it's a cliche, but I, I feel that feel very, very strongly about that. And when we were home during COVID and, you know, we, we began to see all the news and the things on TV about how many Americans were, you know, uh, had, had food insecurity, you know, families couldn't feed themselves. And I was thinking in, a, in, the, in the richest country in the world, you know, there should never, ever have been a situation where American families needed food. You know, if I can walk into a supermarket and see the shelves stocked with food, then why are people, why, why don't people have it? Um, you know, it just didn't make sense to my wife and I. And, and that's when we reached out to, we had been supporting Feeding America personally, but we wanted to do more. And we thought, what can we do? What can we do? And I thought, well, let's try to do a virtual, since everything was virtual during the COVID era. Um, I said, let's try to do a virtual song festival where people can contribute. And it was just incredibly uh, to, to see the outpouring of generosity among the, the artists and that we reached out to. Many of them, of course, were people that we knew, our friends, and had personal relationships with. And it was just amazing to see how they, they responded and uh, on, on such a level. And we were very proud of that. It took a lot of work, and it was, it was incredibly rewarding. We salute you, John. We really do. And now, COVID um, 
is going in one sense and, and the world is opening up again. How does it feel to be back on the road again? It feels great. I mean, it feels great to see how uh, the audiences have just been so, you know, starving for uh, that's a terrible word to use, right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> after what we just discussed, yes. <laughs> but but starving for live music and wanting to to be to bring it back and be part of it again. Um, Daryl and I just completed a twenty city tour here in America, and we just did unbelievable, you know, uh, business in terms of ticket sales. People were really wanted to. See to have to experience live music again. So it was wonderful to be able to do that. And, and now, you know, I'm, I'm doing uh, some solo shows with a, an amazing guitarist named Guthrie Trapp here in Nashville, who I've known for 15 years. He and I decided we wanted to do a very stripped down acoustic uh, show. And so we're kind of having some fun with that right now. Uh, but it's, uh, it's just great. It's just great to be, to, to be back out there playing again. And uh, I hope that we can continue that. Do you have a favorite venue or country to perform in? No, I mean, <laughs> my favorite place to perform is where people actually want to come out. <laughs> I like it, yes. I don't care where it is. Uh, but we've, we've played all over the world, and, you know, it's just uh, every place is different. You know, every experience is different, and that's what makes it interesting. I do, I have to say, you know, there's there's nothing that can compare to selling out, you know, um, Madison Square Garden or, you know, a, a big venue in London or mm. Tokyo or something like that. But at the same time, there's nothing that compares to playing a small theater or a small listening room where people are really literally right in front of you and, and you have an intimacy that, that, and I love the, I love the, you know, the juxtapose those two things, the big venues and then go back and break it down and play in these small venues. Uh, I think it's really, it's kind of healthy musically. It just keeps you, keeps you grounded. Of course it does. Now, John, you've got an incredible, incredible. <laughs> I don't know what's happening there. That's okay. It no, shows it's live, doesn't it? You have an incredible back catalogue. How on earth do you put put together a set list? Well, <laughs> that's 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 one of our, our greatest um, achievements and our greatest uh, issues. <laughs> we we have we have a lot of hits, and you know we have to acknowledge. Uh, from a professional point of view, that there are um, there's an audience out there who are coming to see and hear those hit records, those songs that they've you know they've taken into their hearts and, and into their you know that's become part of their um, their life you know and, you know and their soundtrack of their lives. And we, we you know I think we have a, res- a professional responsibility to, to play those songs for those people. And at the same time, we have 300 songs in our album catalog that are a lot of them are really cool and very interesting musically. And we also want to play those, but you know, there's only so many songs you can play in a set. Um, so it, it's, a, it's always a, a bit of a, you know, a, a quandary to figure out how to uh, address that. And, you know, we play the hits and then we always add a few album tracks in there and, and we rotate them. And your new album live at the Troubadour is out this weekend. What can we expect from it? Because it sounds very exciting. Well, it was a, it was a time when we were doing a, a, it was kind of an unplugged plugged show. I I say you know it, it was a, we had some we were doing acoustic guitars, but it was definitely a full rhythm section. Um, and you know one of the, the the most important things for me personally about this record is that it features the great Tom T Bone Wolk, who was our bass player and became our guitarist later on. Uh, one of the most important musical uh, pe- personalities that I had ever 
you know, uh, had the pleasure of being around and, and working with over the years. He was, he was a consummate musician, one of the greatest musicians I've ever been, uh, you know, associated with. And uh, a, gr- a good friend and a good person uh, as well. He passed away years ago, but uh, he's, he's featured prominently on this record. Um, so that, that makes it very important to me. Uh, what also makes it important is that one of the first shows that Daryl and I played when we were starting out in 1972 we played, uh, we opened for Harry Chapin at the Troubadour in Los Angeles. And it was one of, it was one of our first Los Angeles shows. So, um, it really means a lot. To, it meant a lot to go back to the Troubadour and celebrate that anniversary with them by, by playing this and recording this live show. It's a tremendous listen. It really is. So, um, it's on vinyl as well as CD and downloads and everything, isn't it? So well worth picking up. John, thank you so much for your time. It's been a joy and a privilege chatting to you. One last question. What would you be doing if you weren't as popular and as successful as you were in, in the world of music? I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure if I wasn't as popular and successful, I think I'd still be trying. <laughs> um, I don't think I could ever get music out of my blood. But if I if I had something else to do, I'd probably be driving a race car. Of some sort. <laughs> um, you know, motor racing has always been a big passion of mine. And I had an opportunity to do that over the years and still have great uh, friends and, and still associated in the, in the motorsports world. So. Brilliant. There's John Oates. Fabulous. Thank you so much, John. Don't go anywhere. More great music. You're listening to the Backstory Podcast, where we remember the good times, the things you love, the things you are, the things you never want to lose. So there we go. Thanks so much for listening right to the very end. It'd be great if you can do me a quick favour before you go. Simply head over to wherever you get your podcasts and rate us five stars and leave a glowing review too. It really does make a massive difference. Then quite simply, we shoot up the charts, more people listen, and it really is happy days. Thanks a million. You've been listening to the Backstory Podcast with Steve Legg and friends. Catch you next time.